Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Kate Aronoff, staff writer at The New Republic and the author of the excellent new book, Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet and How We Can Fight Back. She's also the co-author of We Own the Future, Democratic Socialism, American Style and A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Today, we discuss Biden's climate plan, the Green New Deal, and whether fossil fuel executives should be tried for crimes against humanity. Thanks, as always, to our brilliant patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. As always, a big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Kate Aronoff on whether Biden's plan to fight climate breakdown goes far enough. Hello, Kate Aronoff, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today? I am doing all right. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah, I can't complain. Fully vexed. So, uh, <laughs> oh, nice. On the, on the, the good end of the spectrum, relatively speaking. Oh, lucky you. Well, let's start then by talking about your thoughts on Biden's plans to tackle climate breakdown. We've been hearing a lot about how Biden's going to kind of ride in and and save the planet. What is your assessment of his proposals so far? Yeah, I think two things can be true at the same time, right? (laughs) So (laughs) a year ago, uh, I guess more than a year ago at this point, during the Democratic primary, Biden ran on arguably the least or, you know, second or third least ambitious climate plan of anyone in the field, right? You know, was not sort of taking this issue seriously. The premier climate plan was from Bernie Sanders, a $16.2 trillion climate plan sort of tackling, you know, every every aspect of the U.S. economy, a sort of strong internationalist element to it. And, you know, no one really thought of Biden as being a climate candidate. And people argued against Biden's candidacy on the grounds that he was not living up to the task, not sort of claiming to, you know, want to take on this crisis at the speed and scale it deserves. So, you know, fast forward to that, even in the lead up to Biden being elected and sort of preparing to take the office in January. I think people were, you know, had pretty measured expectations about what he would do, even as, you know, his plan had gotten better through a lot of pushing from groups like the Sunrise Movement, from climate justice organizations. You know, there were was a lot of pressure on Biden in the lead up to the election and then his inauguration to do more. And it wasn't really clear that was going to happen. Uh, but, you know, as it, as it did happen, you know, he passed a giant stimulus, which was good, did not include climate elements, of course, and has come out with fairly ambitious plans on climate relative to every other president. So is pledging to invest a trillion dollars, roughly speaking, over eight years, which is too long. I'll get into the, I'm I'm sort of jumping the gun in the (laughs) the critical element, but um, now, but to say, you know, a couple of good things, you know, is is pledging an all of government approach, sort of making climate a priority 
for every sort of cabinet official has appointed two dedicated, uh, dedicated cabinet posts to dealing with the climate crisis. This is not what anyone would have called a year ago. And the fact that climate is being prioritized in the administration is the result of a lot of pushing uh, from climate justice organizers and from, you know, the Sunrise Movement, from people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. All that is true, right? And then, you know, I think there's something else similar happening when we think about deficits and we think about spending and kind of what the scope of government action can look like. This is not the Obama administration. So there's a lot of things that I think climate advocates can really take credit for in terms of how far Biden has come. At the same time, we haven't passed any climate policy yet. We haven't gotten anything through. That's not entirely Joe Biden's fault, right? We have a 50-50, you know, balance in the in the Senate, which makes passing things very hard. We have, you know, conservative Democrats. We have a Republican Party, which doesn't really want anything called climate policy to happen. So that's not entirely under his control. But we've, what we've already seen, you know, is a shift away from, I think, what people were sort of calling a maybe end of neoliberalism in the Biden administration by passing, you know, this big stimulus, uh, right? You know, not not too long after he, he got into office, it expanded the welfare state, albeit temporarily in the United States, you know, and, and, and would has made a big difference in people's lives, extended unemployment insurance, uh, the child tax credit, all these things are, are, you know, huge sort of innovations in policy um, relative to where, you know, our safety net was before, which was kind of like Swiss cheese. But those are going to run out. And in the sort of months since then, we've seen this sort of slow creep back of deficit, you know, concerns. So, Things like pay-fors are being talked about, you know, the whole American job plan, American families plan. There's this idea that that all has to be paid for through taxes, which is going to make it just tougher, right, to get through a very narrow majority in the Senate and really sort of defaulting back to these things that are very comfortable for Joe Biden, right, to be a deficit hawk, to be, you know, someone who wants... uh, wants to be a little more constrained and reasonable and go to the Republicans and ask what they want, yada, yada. And that is incompatible with dealing with the speed and scale of the climate crisis, right? If his plan, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but if, you know, his his plan, as it looks like is the case, is to get climate action through a big infrastructure package, because that's, you know, the only way we really pass legislation in the United States is to like jam things into these big omnibus bills, which basically have to pass. Uh, then what what's even on the table, what's the most ambitious thing on the table in the American job plan is just woefully inadequate, right? You know, spending less than 1% of GDP a year on the greatest existential threat the world has ever known is totally inadequate, just totally inadequate to the, to the crisis at hand. And because the bar has been so low, particularly through the Trump administration, that's you know, has gotten a lot of praise <laughs> to to spend that, you know, very, very modest amount of money. And, you know, a lot of it is through tax credits and through, you know, these things that people won't sort of be able to see directly, which is kind of the the, the, the mandate of the administration, right, is to win itself a reelection and not lose the House, the House of Representatives in 2022 and, you know, do big popular things. And I think to make climate policy look big and popular and like it's going to make your life better. And Biden really hasn't proven himself willing to do that. And I think, you know, just briefly, I think the other two big, big gaps in the plan besides the, you know, really sort of muted scale of it 
are one that it's almost entirely focused on the U.S. borders. Any anything that that happens internationally, you know, that's not like the Paris Agreement, is really sort of uh, muted. I mean, we have a really sort of like entrenched foreign policy establishment, which has not uh, has has not really ceded much ground on climate. That is the wall of the all of government approach is that, that our foreign policy establishment, which, you know, supports sending military aid to uh, Israel unconditionally, you know, all of these sort of regressive projects uh, around the world um, that, you know, has gone largely unquestioned. And there hasn't been a lot of critical thinking as to what a sort of internationalist approach, obviously, Joe Biden is not like thinking in those terms, but to what a sort of, you know, responsible footprint in the world for the United States to be acting on climate is beyond like John Kerry kind of, you know, globe trotting around to these different summits and having nice press conferences. Um, so that's one thing. And just, you know, the last thing is fossil fuels. It's not the plan that Joe Biden has put on offer. Um, does very little to directly constrain fossil fuel production, which is, you know, essentially fighting the climate challenge with one hand tied behind your back. So you mentioned there that there's been a lot of talk as to how, you know, because the US government is spending more because it's kind of expanding the social safety net, we're seeing the end of neoliberalism. It's kind of gone up in flames during COVID-19. But we also know that kind of higher levels of government spending, especially when a lot of that spending is directed towards big business and finance and actually in the US, fossil fuel companies, means that a bigger government doesn't necessarily or even you know, is not likely to mean a kind of socialist utopia. So I'm wondering if you really do think that some of the promises that Biden is making at the moment do herald the end of neoliberalism or just a kind of, you know, transition towards a more statist form of capitalism? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I do think in some ways it's a little too soon to tell. And I think the, the kind of like... <laughs> celebrations uh, after the the stimulus passed in the winter uh, were, were a bit premature. Um, I do think some really meaningful things have changed, right? Like the people who are surrounding Joe Biden are not Larry Summers, are not Timothy Geithner, these like real allies of Wall Street who really hate the idea of, of deficit spending in general are, you know, really hostile to the idea that government could do big things. So there is some general comfort that government can do big things and even, you know, that that should be advertised. I got a letter from the name on the on the envelope with the Internal Revenue Service or, you know, tax collection agency and then, you know, opened it and there's a letterhead from the White House saying, you know, Basically, I'm Joe Biden. I just sent you $1,400, which is great. You know, that's the, the sort of thing you want um, is, you know, for uh, for the, the state to sort of advertise it's doing good things in, in people's lives as a, you know, step to kind of ripping up some of these neoliberal dogmas. But, you know, even, even on climate policy, right, I think we still see a lot of sort of stubborn adherence to kind of neoliberal types of government. And what I mean by that, right, is that a lot of the logic behind the climate plans and behind, you know, other, other parts of the plan, but I'll, you know, talk about what I know more about, um, are policies which are intended to leverage private investment, right? And so you see things like tax credits, which allow companies to like, 
it makes a, a certain type of investment, you know, in, in our case, um, you know, the investment in production tax credits for wind and solar um, makes those things more attractive. And so, you know, that and other sorts of policies in that family, the logic is really that if you just put in a little bit of public capital, if you put in a bit of a bit of public spending, that that will, you know, encourage the market that will send a signal for private investors to really flood into this space. And it's not that that is wrong. I think there's an extent to which that is true, but it's a very different thing, right? Than something like the New Deal, you know, which spent money directly, which hired people directly, you know, expanded the civil service greatly, mounted, you know, huge direct hiring campaigns like the Works Progress Administration. And it's a it's a really different theory of governance. And, you know, I think in contrast to, you know, proposals for something like a Green New Deal, where the idea is that public investment can catalyze public support and can catalyze sort of electoral majorities to build kind of the the, the sorts of, of electoral and kind of movement muscle needed to drive forward a decade of decarbonization, right? That is, you know, I think the sort of political vision embedded within, within the Green New Deal, which maybe we can talk about later. But still what we see from the Biden administration is that, you know, we are dependent, right, on the private sector to invest in the things that we want. And so we have to, you know, the U.S. government has to make that investment clear. And I, I don't think that's, you know, bad. I think that, that that needs to happen, right? But I don't think that sort of catalyzation process can be the only thing that drives climate progress forward um, because we know the private sector is like hugely disorganized and is not, you know, uh, we shouldn't trust them, frankly, uh, to, you know, to make the, the sort of investment needed to keep warming below two degrees Celsius or 1.5. And that is, you know, the real gamble, I think, of of that sort of approach to, you know, quote unquote, leverage private investment, the sort of watchword of, of climate finance and, and, you know, a lot of other things too. So I don't think that has been displaced yet. I don't think there has been like a real sort of frame shift in terms of how the Biden administration thinks policy should operate, even as there's been, um, you know, more sort of, like I said before, more openness toward bigger levels of spending for some things, and, you know, to, to make the role of government sort of known in people's lives as a positive thing. So another book that you co-authored was We Own the Future, Democratic Socialism, American Style. Um, and I'm wondering what you think, you know, based on that conceptualization of democratic socialism, what the differences are between that kind of market-based approach that you were just talking about and a democratic socialist approach to tackling climate breakdown. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I think a democratic socialist approach like puts certain ideas back on the table, which have been beaten off of it by, by you know, decades and decades of, of red baiting, uh, of trying to sort of crush the left in, in every form, which, you know, has happened in, in, in many different parts of the world. And, you know, in the US has really sort of starved a certain amount of vision out of, out of, um, left movements that has, you know, persisted, but, um, you know, has historically, I think, been the role of socialism to put out a different vision for society. So I think, you know, maybe to start in the kind of broad scope, I think, you know, what socialist movements have been good for, and they've been good for many things, but I think one sort of key role that, that socialists have played historically in, in, you know, making 
this country a better place um, is to say, you know, life doesn't have to be like this. Life can be better. Life can be, you know, more sort of leisurely and fruitful and and rewarding um, than, you know, working two or three jobs that are killing planet, right? And I think a democratic socialist approach to the climate crisis kind of foregrounds that, right? The idea that the only thing wrong with capitalism is not that it runs on fossil fuels, that it's a sort of life-destroying system, broadly defined. And there should be an alternative to that. And it's so hard, you know, with something as ubiquitous as the fossil fuel industry, for instance, to think beyond it. And socialism and democratic socialism in particular sort of gives a vision for what that could look like and sort of a reason for for people to hope. And we've seen, you know, real evidence of that and things like the Bernie Sanders campaign, right? Putting out, you know, this big, probably, you know, social democratic vision, which is, you know, far, far more ambitious than than the kind of political norm here, uh, less ambitious, right, than kind of socialist politicians outside of the United States. But people want to fight for it, right? And we're willing to knock doors and go to Iowa in the dead of winter in 2020 and go door to door, do text banking, phone banking, spend their weekends fighting for it because uh, they believed in it, right? And I think that, you know, is the is, is, is what, you know, a, a socialist program can do. And I think, so that's the sort of political vision of it. I think in terms of what a policy response looks like, I, it means an openness to things like public ownership, right? You know, and we talk in the book and I talk in my book, Overheated, about you know, putting public ownership of utilities on the table, which is electric utilities in particular, which is something that investor-owned utilities have fought, you know, for decades, going back to the beginning of electricity in this country, forms of municipal ownership and public ownership were viciously, viciously attacked um, as being anti-American, as being sort of communist plots. But, you know, as, as people have said, historically, it's a more rational way to distribute electricity to not have people making a profit off it, right? Putting things like nationalizing the fossil fuel industry on the table, we know these companies have never acted in good faith on climate. They're, you know, pretending they will now by trying to reach net zero or something, but, you know, have really misled the public and have led elaborate disinformation campaigns to make it seem like they, you know, at first uh, were not part of the problem that climate change, you know, was not happening or that maybe it was a good thing funding these sort of, you know, really sort of elaborate disinformation campaigns. And now we're, you know, trying to cast themselves as sort of critical ingredients in the climate in the climate fight. And, you know, what nationalization says is that, you know, actually your private ownership of these companies is irresponsible, right? We don't trust you to get off of fossil fuels, to, to throw away your core business model that is killing the planet in time to save it. And that an option that the U.S. has used historically, including in, in, in somewhat recent memory, is to bring those companies under, under public ownership. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, actually. Um, let's talk a bit more about the fossil fuel companies. You've previously argued in an excellent article for Jacobin that um, fossil fuel executives should be tried for crimes against humanity. Can you tell us what the argument for this is? So, you know, I, I think uh, from a kind of campaigning point of view that enemies are important and fossil fuel executives make that very clear. And fossil fuel 
executives are very good enemies for a number of reasons. I mean, for some, some of the things I, I talked about before, which is that, you know, they have for decades, despite knowing the scale of the crisis, despite knowing that their products were driving it, were driving up emissions, um, have continued both to fund climate denial efforts, you know, circa 20, 30 years ago, basically as soon as the climate crisis entered the public conversation, they like whipped into shape these like enormous business lobbies, things like the Global Climate Coalition to undermine progress, things like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change within the UN and the Framework Convention on Climate Change and have at every step of the way denied that something was happening or in more recent years sort of delayed progress in these really disastrous ways that have just wasted decades that we will never, never get back. And that means that we need to act so quickly. And so why I think this is particularly important now is because you see this really elaborate rebranding happening on the part of fossil fuel executives who are really trying to cost themselves as good faith actors in the climate fight. It's being people who are, you know, earnestly interested in saving a planet. They're racing toward net zero too. And why won't governments just, you know, come to the table and work with them um, to craft these plans, right? Um, and, you know, something like uh, putting on the table the idea that they could be tried in the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity for, you know, things like fossil fuels being responsible for one in five deaths worldwide in 2018. I mean, the figures, when you look at sort of how many deaths that the fossil fuel industry is responsible for, it's unfathomable almost, both from direct pollution, which, you know, does kill a lot of people and from the effects of climate change. I mean, there is blood on their hands frankly, for this crisis and for, you know, their product and that they have spent no shortage of time trying to obscure that reality. And so I think, you know, putting putting the ICC demand on the table, which, you know, I will say I don't think is so imminent, right, that that, that process is going to happen. The ICC is sort of not known for acting quickly, right? It's not a, you know, expedient body um, that delivers justice to, to many, many people. But, you know, I think that, the fossil fuel executives in particular have to be public enemy number one, essentially, if in, in, in order to get anywhere with this crisis. They cannot be in the room deciding what climate policy looks like, which they have really tried to do time and time again. I mean, I had a you know Shell executive shove a plan from Shell into my face for decarbonization after he had sort of claimed credit for the company helping write, you know, a section of the Paris Agreement. Um, so this, you know, this is this is already happening. And part of, you know, making them really maligned, which I think is not, you know, a hard push necessarily. Um, I think people, you know, already sort of dislike the fossil fuel industry in, in many different ways. But, you know, part of what that does is, is really galvanize sort of public energy against them and make them pariahs <laughs> within the business community, right? I think there is a certain extent to which taking on the challenge of the climate crisis means sort of dividing arms of capital against itself. And the fossil fuel industry is really easy enemy in that. And I think, you know, making sure that that they are not sort of invited to the coolest parties at Davos, for instance, you know, is, is kind of important work, um, making sure that they are not respected, really, in the realm of the Fortune 500 is really key, because, you know, they cannot be a part of this sort of matrix of solutions to 
the climate crisis and yeah, really need to be taken out and held accountable, right? And, and held accountable um, for death, which is what they have caused. Talk to us about the idea of a carbon footprint. Um, so the oil giants kind of came up with this phrase as a way of avoiding corporate responsibility for climate breakdown and focusing mainly on individual actions. What impact do you think that approach has had on the fight against climate breakdown? Yeah, and in the book, I talk about the fact that climate change in the U.S. really bursts into public consciousness in 1988 at the tail end of the Reagan administration after a kind of neoliberal revolution has had so much success, right, in changing kind of what constitutes economic common sense. And part of that is focus, right, on the individual and the idea that, you know, there's the Thatcher quote that there's no such thing as society. There are like men and women and their families and <laughs> that they can, they are the only ones, you know, who, who are capable of change in, in, in some way. So, you know, that is like the deep, deep logic of the world that the climate crisis, awareness of the climate crisis enters into. And it's, so it only makes sense that every response to it gets filtered through that lens and that's very convenient for the fossil fuel industry to work with right and to say that well you know it's not a systemic problem it's not even our fault it's that you know people are fueling emissions that that people are not turning off their lights or not biking to work or not you know using sort of more efficient heating systems are, are not, you know, personally motivated to put solar panels in their homes. And that really, you know, takes hold. There's this whole sort of idea um, that has roots in earlier environmentalisms, right, that people aren't being sort of prudent enough with with their environmental footprint, right? That, um, that you know, people aren't, um, aren't being responsible stewards of the earth. So BP popularizes this idea of a carbon footprint to really tap into that, right? And they have this calculator on their website that says, you know, if you bike to work and if you turn off your lights and if you use your air conditioner this amount of time, you know, you're doing your part and we're BP and we're doing our part too, right? <laughs> to, to make it seem as if like you, that you're just, you know, playing your part just like BP is playing their part when they are responsible for a super majority of emissions, right? And are responsible for fueling demand for fossil fuels are, you know, driving the climate crisis in all these ways. And it, you know, puts them on this sort of level playing field with the average consumer, which is absurd, right? To, to the idea that like everyone has, you know, their little corner of, of, of the carbon budget that they are just personally responsible for really obscures the fact that, you know, we have governments which shape consumer choices in all sorts of ways. There are corporations who shape consumer choices in all sorts of ways. And that, you know, very little of the climate crisis is due to, you know, personal irresponsibility, right? And that's, you know, comes up again and again, not just with climate, but, you know, this is like the narrative after 2008, which is that, you know, people who took out risky mortgages were knew that they were doing wrong, knew that they couldn't pay them back. And so that was their fault um, that they crashed the housing market by taking on more than they can bear when there were bankers selling them because they were making a huge profit off of these like huge financial products built off of bad mortgages. So, you know, I think there's there's something very similar that's happened with climate, um, which is to say, oh, well, you know, everyone, you know, has their has their little part to play in this when the 
corporations have done far more and kind of government policy is the key, right? We've seen this in the last year with COVID um, that like governments enforce lockdowns and that was has been key for different countries and curbing their infections, right? Right. That was not like the result, like Australia and New Zealand's lockdown in 2020 was the result of government policy and their successful handling of the coronavirus was the result of state policy to make sure, you know, to coordinate sort of individual action in ways that really kept infections down. And personal responsibility was some part of that, right? People went along with it. There weren't, you know, there, there was a lot of work that people did collectively to come together and, and fight, the, fight the virus, right? But ultimately what that came down to was state policy. And that is the thing that, you know, that the fossil fuel industry would rather not um, have happen is, is, is for, you know, regulations to constrain fossil fuel production and consumption directly. What about the political role of the fossil fuel giants in US politics? How closely are the big oil companies linked to both parties? The political influence of the fossil fuel industry is ubiquitous, I would say. They are one of the most partisan political donors in the country. So even things like pharmaceuticals or finance give roughly equal amounts to Republicans and Democrats. Fossil fuels give much, much more money to the GOP, to Republicans. And what that means is that, you know, the Republican politicians at most levels of government, I mean, we see this in the Congress especially, but, you know, state legislatures even, are attack dogs for the fossil fuel industry. I mean, they will immediately sort of parrot talking points about any anything that happens, right? We saw this, you know, just in the last couple of weeks when the colonial pipeline up and down the East Coast was hacked by kind of ransomware gangs. Um, and the immediate talking point from the American Petroleum Institute, the big trade lobby was we need more pipelines to prevent things like this from happening. And, you know, you saw sort of down the line of Republican leadership saying virtually identical talking points to to what the American Petroleum Institute was saying. So that sort of thing is just so par for the course. It's so, you know, common. <laughs> and it's almost like feels like boring to write about um, because of how ubiquitous that is. And, you know, the fossil fuel industry in particular and, and different arms of it have played a really key role in, in driving the country to the right more generally, you know, which is bad for climate and, you know, for kind of any in a small d sense of democracy. So during the cap and trade fight about a decade ago, when was the last time that Congress was sort of considering passing big climate policy, as flawed as it was, the Koch brothers really sort of shifted into gear and decided, you know, smartly on on their part to support the Tea Party uh, and sort of hand out these talking points to deploy organizers through Americans for Prosperity and galvanize them against the idea of of cap and trade, the idea of climate policy, and backed primary challengers, sort of unleashed people on these town halls that usually have like no one in them to talk about this very, very specific thing of like carbon taxes and carbon pricing, uh, which, you know, nobody would have, I mean, may, maybe a couple people, but there would not have been like massive anger about carbon pricing if it had not been for groups like Americans for prosperity. 
And, you know, that really helped bring the Tea Party to power at the same time that it killed climate policy. Um, and that, you know, has been true historically. And, you know, the fossil fuel industry has been a key part of things like the National Association of Manufacturers and, you know, has funded things like the Heritage Foundation, American Enterprise Institute, all of these sort of like neoliberal think tanks, which, you know, have really worked to shift what economic common sense is and are just part of a water sort of at this point, right? The idea of fossil fuel influence, it's not even as if like somebody hands a envelope of cash when there's a key vote coming up, right? It's just so ubiquitous at this point that they, you know, are are in the room, that they are, you know, calling calling certain shots, are, you know, the people who define talking points around energy and climate for Republicans. And that, you know, Democrats swim in that water too. And they do get fossil fuel funding, many of them, uh, particularly, you know, in states like Texas, uh, where the oil and gas industry has its sort of big hub. And that's the water the Democrats are swimming in too. And that has just become such a normalized part of the political process, both to, you know, take some of their talking points at face value and, you know, to not want to piss them off because they are such a, you know, massive force. And so Democrats really like to avoid going after the fossil fuel industry because they fear the sort of political backlash that will come if they do it. But, you know, what I've argued is that that's inevitable, right? Any any plan which takes on the fossil fuel industry is going to sort of poke the beast of you know, this, this massive, historically powerful industry. And that is unavoidable. <laughs> you, you have to piss these people off and, you know, be ready for that fight. How popular are ideas like the Green New Deal across the US? And how many victories have been won so far by campaigners? I've noticed in a few parts of the US, there seems to have been some progress with unions representing workers who work in the fossil fuel sector managed to kind of come to agreements with campaigners about the need for a just transition. Is this something that's kind of picking up speed? Yeah, it, it really is picking up speed. I mean, the Green New Deal, not long after it sort of burst into headlines in the US in 2018 with the sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Sunrise Movement did, uh, has been a popular set of policies, right? Both in terms of like the individual sort of aspects of it, things like a federal job guarantee and, you know, government action on climate change has historically been pretty popular. These are all things that, you know, have been, have polled very well for a, a long time. The challenge is that, you know, we have a political system which is bad at translating public opinion into political action because, you know, we have a sort of shambling democracy here that makes that very tough through institutions like the U.S. Senate. But we have seen, you know, some real progress in recent years working at different parts of that. You know, you mentioned unions and we have seen, you know, a lot of unions sort of come out in support of a Green New Deal. I mean, the American Federation of Teachers, for instance, the Service Employees International Union, two of the biggest unions in the country are, you know, supportive of the Green New Deal. And what has happened, which is really tough, is that, you know, the segment of, of, of labor, the building trades, you know, construction workers and, you know, other people who, you know, have members, many of whom have members in the fossil fuel industry have been 
uh, historically very opposed to climate policy. And that has been used as sort of a cudgel against organized labor coming on board. So even, you know, when you have um, a lot of, you know, union members who like the Green New Deal, there's polling showing that, the sort of internal politics of the American Federation of Labor is such that, you know, if the mine workers, for instance, or the Layuna, the laborers don't like something, that it won't get through. And, and their voices, they've had a really outsized voice in that, the leadership of, of, of the building trades unions. But, you know, there is real, there is is support among, among workers for a Green New Deal and so among certain members. And, you know, I've been really encouraged to see campaigns like that for the PRO Act, uh, which is a piece of legislation which would peel back a lot of the sort of regressive changes to labor law that happened after World War II. And you've seen the painters union working with Democratic Socialists of America and Sunrise to get that passed and really, you know, building this sort of commonality. So I think that is the bridge, right, between this, you know, slightly more abstract kind of polling support for a Green New Deal and building the shared sense of solidarity with unions and, and, you know, not just saying, you know, we'll offer you a job down the line when we close your coal plant, but really fighting together on, you know, important fights like the PRO Act, which will be, um, you know, both good for for decarbonization uh, and, you know, help sort of amass the, the kind of alliances needed to take on the weight of the fossil fuel industry. So, yeah, I think that those sorts of campaigns are really helping helping make the Green New Deal more popular and sort of neutralizing the type of, you know, very specifically organized support, the particularly organized opposition to climate policy, which has been, you know, such a a barrier to date. We've spoken a bit about how Biden's domestic policy has been kind of surprisingly progressive, but his foreign policy is obviously, as you mentioned, just as atrocious as many previous administrations. Um, how do you think that ongoing U.S. imperialism is going to compromise the fight against climate breakdown? I think the U.S. has a long history of talking a big game on climate and then showing up with very little, basically for as long as negotiations have been happening in the U.N. on climate change, dating back to you know the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, um, there's been this real back and forth, right, between uh, different administrations saying we're committed to this problem, you know, we are going to take on the climate crisis, American leadership is here to save the world, and having very little to show for it at home is sort of one end of this, right, is that nobody at this point in the world stage has much reason to believe the U.S. is going to be a leader on climate change, right? We left the Kyoto Protocol in 1997. We left the Paris Agreement um, when Donald Trump took office. So why would anyone take the U.S. seriously? I mean, that's that's one sort of layer of it. But the deeper layer of it is that the U.S. has really been a negative force in many, many other countries, right? I mean, we are an imperial power and spend so much more money funding military bases, funding, you know, supportive right-wing regimes and coups in, in different places. And there's just such a lack of good faith between the U.S. and the rest of the world, particularly, you know, in the global South. And nothing that the Biden administration has done so far 
I think, has really done much to change that image, right? To change the idea that the U.S. is um, a real, you know, threat to to some people's livelihoods, right? And this, you know, acts in in many many ways as an empire, and you know, has kept a set of rules in place at the international level, whether that's through the World Trade Organization or the IMF and the World Bank that keep countries poor, that, you know, are designed in, in many ways, you know, to create sort of an unequal world system. And we're set up, you know, <laughs> that way and, and have been, that has been the sort of common practice of, of the IMF and World Bank for a very long time, um, is, you know, to maintain a very unequal world order. And the administration has not shown any interest in backing down on that. In fact, it's like really eager, you know, people like Secretary of State Tony Blinken say, you know, we want the U.S. to maintain its leadership at the top of our rules-based international order. And how, why would any any country, particularly, you know, in the South, particularly countries which have not contributed a lot to this crisis, to the climate crisis, want to participate in a good faith diplomatic effort with the U.S. to take on the climate crisis, right? The, the U.S. has, you know, been such a sort of bad faith actor in those fights historically, even in moments of democratic leadership, in taking conversations about climate finance off the table, never really exploring any anything like widespread debt relief or throwing its weight around for good, you know, in, in the IMF or, or World Bank to, you know, make decarbonization, make mitigation possible for other countries. There's just so little trust, right? And, and that trust deficit, I think, poses a real barrier to taking on the climate crisis and just really basic diplomatic efforts, right? Why would anyone trust us <laughs> to do to do the right thing by climate without some sort of good faith commitment? I think, you know, the most positive sign we've seen so far toward that end is Biden agreeing to support proposals to waive intellectual property protections for COVID-19 vaccines, right? That is like the most sort of, to my mind, kind of groundbreaking thing that the administration has done so far with regard to foreign policy and is a great first step. And that, you know, I think should be a model, right, for, for climate action. Not that, you know, that's having any sort of immediate impact right now like that, you know, it's does not mean that the world is about to get vaccines. But the way the Biden administration still talks about climate action, it's like the U.S., you know, U.S. leadership coming to the rescue that we are going to make all the electric cars and batteries and really command world markets, dominate clean energy export markets, particularly to sort of outcompete China, um, which has become this new watchword across the aisle here. And it's really, you know, it's really sort of America first as usual, which has been our foreign policy for a very, very long time. And I think that, you know, just doesn't get us very far. It doesn't get us, it doesn't get the United States very far to taking on the climate crisis to sort of continue to project American dominance into every aspect of the, of the world order. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. Thanks so much for having me. 